Well, it's great to see all of y'all today in worship. For those of you that are guests, my name's David. I'm the pastor. We're glad you're here. I hope you always feel welcome and always know you're welcome to what we have going on at, uh, at our church. We're in a series that started in June, going to end later this month, uh, entitled The Kingmaker, and it's about Samuel. And Samuel's one of these pivotal figures in the Old Testament. And uh, the reason it's called The Kingmaker is because it, for all the great things that Samuel did, and we'll see this next week, Probably the highlight and the highest point in terms of his ministry was when he anointed David to be king of Israel. Because David would become the greatest leader Israel would ever know between Moses and Jesus. But more importantly than that, in David, you have the one who is pointing towards Jesus. When Jesus comes, you know, as the Messiah, he, he is coming as a descendant of David. He is coming as the one who fulfilled a promise made to David of a king who would always reign. He is the Messiah. And so and all of these things work together, which is what makes Samuel so important. And he came at a time when Israel was just being ravaged by paganism. They had completely abandoned God, and he, he brought them together and got them to worship only the one true Lord, their God, and move them forward in that process. And so he becomes this instrumental figure. And one of the things that Samuel really does throughout the series that I've kind of tried to hit on is the idea that everybody needs somebody to save them. And because that's what Samuel did for Israel, and because that's where Samuel is moving the people to get to David, to get to Jesus, ultimately God is working through all of this to get us to the one who saves us. Now today's message is going to be from a very difficult passage. It's 1 Samuel 15. It's entitled, The Obedient. Samuel was obedient. Saul, as we'll see in a moment, who was king before David, was not obedient David would be obedient. And from the message today, this is really what I want you to see. That we don't get to determine how to follow God. But God does. So do things God's way. Obey God. This is important because this is where Saul got messed up. Saul wanted to determine how to follow God. We don't get to do that. And we do that a lot in our life. We're all guilty of that at some point. But that's not what we get to do. God makes that determination. So we're going to begin the message today talking about why revelation matters. And I'm not talking about the last book of the Bible, which is what some people think, oh, yeah. No, when I speak of revelation, I speak of that fundamental, foundational pillar of faith. And I talk sometimes about the four pillars of the Christian faith. The revelation is one of them. Revelation is how God makes himself known to us. In fact, what I say quite often, because it's a fundamental truth, is all we know about God is what God chooses to reveal. We don't know everything there is to know. We know everything God wants us to know. But part of revelation is this. It is progressive. It moves towards an ultimate end. So when you're in the Old Testament, what you see about God is not complete in terms of him revealing himself to us. The ultimate revelation of God to us is Jesus. That's why I've constantly hit on the fact that the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus. You've got to understand that, to understand the story of salvation, which culminates with Jesus. Now, one of the things that we do sometimes, and this is, this is what happens in this passage, is that we look at things in Old Testament times, this side of Jesus, and we see it in light of Jesus. 
And we can be somewhat critical of the things that happen. And it's not just Christians. In fact, in Western society, because Western society, whether people admit it or not, or know it or not, just historically look back at it and realize, realize this is true, the worldview that has dominated our way of thinking as Christian, even among those who reject Christianity, even in worldviews that aren't Christian in American culture, our ethic, our sense of right and wrong comes from a Christian perspective. And so we look back in former times and we tend to judge it by what we know now, especially in light of what Christ teaches us, especially about love and mercy and forgiveness. What God has revealed to us today, he didn't reveal totally back in the time of Saul, Samuel, and David. And you have to understand the context of the revelation of God being limited. It wasn't that God was limited or different, but just the context of the world that existed. The world has always existed in a way that's in rebellion against God. The people that worship and follow God has always been smaller than those around. In other words, the culture has many more people, the world has many more people opposed to God as for God, especially back in the time of Saul and Samuel. To understand the story today is to come to Saul. Last week we saw that when Saul had been made king, Samuel kind of gave up and relinquished to Saul leadership. And so in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, Saul has a major test in defeating the Philistines. And back then, part of going to war, part of the process for Israel was to worship of God, to have the sacrifices, to get them where God wants them to be, to be sure they were even to go to war. And instead of waiting on Samuel, who was a priest, Saul, who was not a priest, conducted the sacrifices. And then Samuel shows up and pronounces God's judgment on Saul for, for doing that which Saul was not allowed to do. So we come to 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. This is what we see. This is important. But now your kingdom shall not endure. In other words, it won't last. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In other words, God reveals something to you through Samuel. You didn't do it. And as king, that's a serious offense. So God's going to take the kingdom away. And it's totally on Saul. He blew his chance. And in doing that, God knows that there was someone he's already chosen. He chose after his own heart who will follow him the way God wants him to. Now, now understand, this is going to be David. And David will, will never be considered perfect. Some of the most famous sins in all of human history belong to David, King David. I always want to make that clear when I talk about David and his sin. And yet God's ultimate evaluation of David is unbelievably positive because David never wavered in his love and devotion to God. Now, with that in mind, Saul is still king. And David is not yet anointed. And Saul still has opportunities to follow and serve God. It's all is not lost for Saul. You come to the 15th chapter. And before I go through the 15th chapter, Saul's going to do, I'm going to tell you right now, Saul's going to do the same thing. He's going to disobey. And so once again, Samuel's going to come and pronounce judgment on Saul. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 28, this is what we see. So Samuel said to him, that is Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. <laughs> you never want God to tell us that someone is better than us, right? And that's what he did. Now, as Samuel had come and pronounced judgment on Saul, as he was walking away, Saul grabbed the robe of Samuel that tore, and Samuel said, so has the kingdom been torn from you. So Samuel says that God is taking your kingdom away. It's going to go to David. The question is why. Why did all this happen? So we come to the very first part of 1 Samuel 15, and here's what we see in verse 1. Then Saul, Samuel said to Saul, 
the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. To be anointed is to be set aside. Saul was the first king. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. By the way, and this is so important, verse 2. Thus says the Lord. The prophets spoke. Remember I said Samuel was a prophet. The prophet spoke the mind of God. He is speaking what God is saying. Thus says the Lord. This is what God says. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. That phrase utterly destroy comes from the Greek word harim, uh, which is a ban, a, a ban of a death sentence, a judgment. And do not spare him and put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's a hard passage. And people come to this and they say, man, it's hard to follow God. And I get it. This is a hard passage to understand living this side of Jesus. It's hard to reconcile this understanding of God with what we see of the God who sent Christ to bring salvation and to tell us to love your enemies as yourself. It is hard. And when you couple it with things that are in Joshua, where you see that God is pronouncing judgment on the sinners and the Canaanites, it's really difficult to grasp that. So let me, let me kind of set this up for you and then tell you what all this means. Centuries before, and depending on how you date the Exodus, anywhere between 220 and 400 years prior to this, Moses was in charge. He had the people of Israel. They had left Egypt. They were not yet going to the promised land. They were not a threat to anybody. And they were in the southern part of kind of the area that we think of the Holy Land. And there were tribes there, and one of the tribes were the Amalekites. They came from a man named Amalek. Amalek had been a descendant of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. So you got all that stuff going back to old, old, old Testament history. And so they were kind of related to the Israelites. Now, the Amalekites did not know the Lord. They were pagans. I mean, they, they worshiped Baal. And I remember, if you were here, the very first message when I was in Judges of this series, I talked about Baal worship and the Canaanite religion and how important that is. Because the Canaanites, not only did they reject the one true God, and they worshiped the gods of their imagination, they practiced child sacrifice. They practiced really deviant, horrific sexual acts and behaviors. All this is part of their religion. They were totally corrupt people. And, the, and none of the Canaanites, none of the people would ever come, come to God. Now, what you have in the Amalekites is set all this up. And to get you where you need to be is to understand that the Amalekites attacked the people of Israel as they were roaming through. And so here's what you see. It's in Exodus 17. It's referenced in November, uh, Numbers 24. But in Deuteronomy 25, never forget, this is Moses now. This is Moses speaking. Several hundred years before Samuel. Never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary. And they struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies and the land he has given you as a special possession, you must destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven. Never forget this. Now, notice two things. One, they had no fear of God. They did not worship God. They were completely in rebellion against God. They rejected him for generations. It has not changed since the time of Samuel. From the time of Moses to Samuel, that has never changed. Second, when the Israelites were there, roaming that area. And what you would normally do back then is the men and the soldiers, would, the strongest, would go up front in case you met somebody to attack you. And you would then have kind of at the back part, you would have women, children, sick and elderly, those who, who, who couldn't fight. Well, the Amalekites set ambush, at least part of them, and when they had passed by, they attacked the weakest element of Israel. In a very cowardly act, they attacked the women and children. 
the, the weak, the elderly, and they attacked to kill them first. Now, the Israelites pivoted, won the battle, but because of this unbelievably cruel act of war, these people who were thoroughly pagan, who sought as their purpose to destroy completely the Israelites, came under the ban of God. The price they had to pay was that they would forfeit their lives. Now, here's the thing. God said, but not now. We'll give it a rest. We'll wait until you are in the promised land. 200 plus years have passed. Do you understand that the people of the Amalekites had every opportunity to come to God? And they never did. So now is the time for God to bring justice. Now, we, we struggle with this, and I get it. But let's keep some things in mind when we come to this passage and the passages in Joshua that talk about the destruction of the Canaanite, Paganite religious people. First of all, in Deuteronomy, we are told in chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, excuse me, chapter, five, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, that the danger is, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 2 through 5, because some of you are going to look it up and fact check me, and I hate when I get fact checked wrong. Man, I hate that. Because then I get, you were wrong, Pastor. Eh, well, whatever. <laughs> Deuteronomy 7, 2 through 5. I think that's one of the, it's those three numbers and some combination. <laughs> the two and a five and a seven, somewhere there. It says that the danger of the pagans in the land of the Canaanites is that they will lead your children to worship false gods. By the way, that's exactly what happened. You understand, we live in a time where because of Christ, we take the gospel to people so they can convert to Christianity. It's beyond the pale of our imagination to think that those who reject Jesus, we would destroy. We would never think that way. In our understanding, what God has revealed, that's not how it works. But back then, pagans never converted to God. By the time you get to Samuel, I know of only two pagans that ever converted to faith in God. Rahab and Ruth, those are the only two. This didn't happen. Now, there'll be some more later on, but that didn't happen. But yet God gave them every opportunity to repent, and it was possible to repent. Because in a few hundred years later, Jonah would go to the city of Nineveh and say, 40 years, I mean, excuse me, 40 days, and Nineveh would be no more. you got 40 days to, re to, to repent or God will destroy you. And they did repent. So it was possible, but it never happened up to this point. And second, back in that day, they looked at warfare. It's not just between two groups, but between the gods of those groups. So whatever God won out was the more powerful God. And so there is a sense in which the Lord has to demonstrate he is the only one. But even more to the point than that, most of the time in warfare back then, when you defeated your enemies, you were excessively cruel to them. It was common to wipe everybody out, men, men women, children, all. It was common to, to have, this, to be blunt, battlefield rape. If you look in, in, in the book of Amos, a couple of hundred years later, when Amos is bringing judgment on the nations, one of the things that peoples would do was they would take the pregnant women and they would rip up their stomachs and take the children and kill them. And, and they would take any captives and they would humiliate them and they would parade them around naked and then they would mutilate them and they would just treat them in grossly horrible ways before they killed them. Israel was never allowed to do this. But at the same time, God has to bring judgment. So here's the thing. If you rebel against God, at some point, you've got to be held accountable. If I worship God, and you don't worship God, in fact, not only do you not worship God, you completely reject God, and then you come and reject me and attack me. If in the end, God treats us the same, then God is not just. If there is no value or reason to follow God, God is not a just God. Now, whether that justice comes in this life or the next, what God said is, got to understand that for people to turn to worship me, they have got to understand the consequences of rebelling. God gave them 200 years 
to repent, and they never did. So it was time to hold them accountable. And that's what he told Saul to do. It was an act of commitment to God to give these people over to the judgment that is God's right to do because they completely rebelled against him. In the context of the day, that was a message that people would understand. There's no Jesus. There's no New Testament. They're not going to get that. So, Saul goes, defeats the Amalekites, but spares the king, Agag, as a sign and token of his superiority of Saul's, and keeps some of the spoil of the best of the ox and the sheep and all that. So, God's not pleased. He sends Samuel, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commandments. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel was distressed. He was frustrated and angry because of all this had happened. Saul had turned his back. Now remember, God had, I told you this a couple of weeks ago, when the people of Israel came to God and said, we're concerned about the future, give us a king. God wasn't ready to give him a king. He had someone lined up. He had David. But, but God reveals himself through his prophet Samuel, and he had not yet done that. And so Israel was impatient. And remember, the reason for it was they wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted to be like the culture around them. So they wanted to be like those cultures, those, and so they asked for kings. So he gave them a king kind of like theirs, Saul, who was this disobedient guy. And God had revealed to Saul through Samuel what he needed to do, and he turned his back. And so Saul was... Saul regretted, I mean, God regretted what he had done. Some of your versions have sorry what he had done. Now, we may struggle with the idea of God having regret or being sorrowful. Didn't God know what was going to happen? Well, yeah. But in these passages, we see something about God that just, it is, if we're not careful, we miss it. We have, a, in God, we have a God who is two things at the same time. He is transcendent and imminent. The transcendence of God speaks of the far awayness of God. He is the God who is out there. He is the God that says, you worship me. And when you don't worship me, when you rebel against me, there's judgment. But he is the God who is imminent. He is the God who is here with us. And is with us God reveals himself to us personally. Ultimately, that's Jesus. We can have a knowledge of God that is personal. And because we are created in the image of God, in that image we reflect some of the attributes of God. And so not only is God an intelligent being, God is a being with emotions. And in the personal relationships, just like you and I can be disappointed. So can God, even though he knows he loves us and wants us to have a relationship with him. I'm put it to you this way. We, had a, we have lots of babies being born all the time. We've got a lot of babies around here. That's cool. We love it. Had a baby born this week. And just, I, I'm going to tell all of you, if you don't know this, that sweet little baby that you will love unconditionally all your life will one day break your heart. They do that. It may not be a big thing, but one day they're going to crush you. They're going to forget a Mother's Day or worse yet. Your son is one day going to be a, a man who marries a woman, and then you will no longer be the most important woman in his life, and that will crush you. And you will remind him constantly of all you sacrificed for him <laughs> and how he's broken your heart. But you still love your kids. So you can, knowing all the heartache you may have, and some of your kids, I'm telling you right now, they're going to crush your soul because I've seen how they act. <laughs> but you still have that relation with the kids. So he comes to Saul. Saul says, but I did obey the Lord. And so in, in verse 19, this is what Samuel says. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Saul would say what I did. But he said, 
but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You didn't obey the Lord. You were evil in his sight. You, you kept back some of the things. But Saul said, I did obey. And then Samuel, here it is, verse 22. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delighted burnt offerings and sacrifices and is obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to it. To obey is better than sacrifice. You might want to memorize that. 1 Samuel 15, 22. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams, verse 23, then says this. For rebellion, which is what they did, that rejected God is the sin of divination, which is a practice of the pagans. Insubordination, which is an arrogant rejection, is as iniquity and idolatry. In other words, rebellion and insubordination in any form is the same as paganism. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You rejected the clear command of God he has rejected you. And Saul couldn't believe that. And Samuel so walks away. And as Samuel walks away, that is where you see Saul reach out to grab the, to grab the, 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 the robe of Samuel. And Samuel says, so has the Lord been torn the kingdom from you. You see, here's Sam's, Saul's problem. In rebelling, in disobedience, what, Sam, what, what Saul did is Saul elevated his own views of God. He replaced God and said, God, I know better than you. I know better than you. So I began this section about why revelation matters. So let me tell you why revelation matters looking at Saul. First of all, revelation matters because obedience is evidence of a relationship with God. If you have a relationship with God, you obey him. Obedience is the evidence. It's not the foundation of that relationship. It is the evidence of that relationship. But beyond that, the other thing is this, that God has revealed everything we need to follow him. So trust God and obey him. God reveals everything we need to follow him. Saul did not have Jesus, no, but he had enough. The Amalekites had revelation. They had revelation that God was the God of Israel. All of them had enough revelation to come to God, and they didn't. That is why revelation matters, which brings us then to the second thing that I really want to share with you from the message today. And it is this, why following Jesus matters. Why does it matter to follow Jesus? I get sometimes it's hard. And for a lot of you, church is fairly new. This church is fairly new. Or you've been out a while. Or you struggle with things. And I get it because I struggle. Listen, I'm 61 years old. I've been in ministry now coming up on 42 years. I still struggle. I've been a Christian all my life. I got saved when I was nine. I was raised in a Baptist church. I mean, I mean, I mean my, my mom was pregnant. I went to a Baptist church. I mean, you, you can't get more Baptist. And, and, and of course, Baptist is everybody knows. Nobody knows more about worshiping God than we do, of course. But sometimes I still struggle. I struggle with this. I struggle with God, just the children. The children, yeah. And so sometimes we have to step out on faith and trust him. And here's the thing. Just because you struggle to understand doesn't mean it's okay to disobey. Because here's the thing. To, abis- to disobey God, to disobey God, whether you understand it or not, is to place our interests and beliefs ahead of his. It's to say we know better than God. Man, that's hard. Ultimately, do I want to say, I know better than God. I don't want to understand that God, and God gets that. And understand, realize you're never going to know all you want to know, okay? I, I don't know all of God I want to know. There's some things about God I want to know. He never revealed it because Jesus didn't. So, you know, when I get to heaven, maybe. Listen, but here's the thing. That's okay. I know what I need to know. I've got to trust him at that point. 
And our culture today lives in such opposition to God. But the news is, every culture always has. Back in the time of Samuel, they lived in opposition to God. You know, Moses in Egypt, Pharaoh lived in opposition to God. When Jesus came, everybody lived in opposition to God. 2,000 years of Christianity, people in opposition to God. We just deal with it differently. And our culture today is that way. Our culture, doesn't, our culture rejects God. I get that. They think about life differently. The culture does not accept the value of life the same way as a follower of Jesus does. They don't look at marriage the way a follower of Jesus should. They don't look at our roles and being in, in, in the image of God the way that God wants us to do that. And so we rebel against God and replace our views. We take, replace God's view with our views. And we disobey. Because we think we know better. But God reveals to us all we need. And the ultimate revelation of God is always Jesus. And all of this stuff points to Jesus. And when we get to Jesus, we got all, we, we got all of it. Back in Saul's day, they didn't have all of it. With Jesus, we have all of it. And what does Jesus say continually for us? Follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Put it this way. Following Jesus is to trust Jesus. It is a faith act based on evidence. I did this whole thing in uh, the first part of the year on Mark. Four months, January through April. The whole thing. And what I did was try to give you the reason, the evidence to why one should follow Jesus. Now, it's still an act of faith. But here's the thing. Whatever your religious view is, you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, you're something else, you're an atheist, whatever. You always eventually take a leap of faith. Your religious view is ultimately an act of faith. You may say, no, it's based on logic and reason. Eh, only to a point. And then it's a leap of faith. And the most logical leap of faith to me is to follow the evidence to Jesus. Do I understand everything in the Old Testament? No, I don't. You don't have to. Why does I tell all your time? If you're going to just start reading the Bible, don't start in the Old Testament. Start in the New Testament. Get Jesus down first and go back and try to understand the rest. But there will always be a struggle. But it's a faith act. Now, here's the thing. Since following Jesus is an act of faith, know this also, though. It is also an act of obedience. The very act of following is in obedience to his call. <laughs> now, as Baptists, we like to say, there's nothing you can do to be saved. You can't earn it and all that, but we're correct. But sometimes we take it to the extreme. It's like there's nothing to do, period. That's not true. In Mark 1, when Jesus came up to Peter and Andrew and James and John, he gave this call. He said, come, follow me. What did they do? They followed him. They obeyed. If you don't follow Jesus, you're disobeying. So ultimately, to follow Jesus is to obey. Then once you follow him in obedience, get this. From that point forward, we live our lives in obedience to Jesus. This is inseparable from faith. You cannot separate faith from obedience. And people try to do that. They try all the time. Back in the day of Saul, to make a sacrifice was an act of worship. That's how they worshiped. And today, you know, we worship, we're here worshiping, okay? Samuel told Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. In other words, it is better to obey than to sacrifice without obedience. It is better to obey than to worship than not obey. Because obedience will always lead you to worship. But how many people are going to come to a church and they're going to worship? They're going to come and say, well, I'm good to go. I'm going to believe certain things. And I believe God exists. I believe there's a Jesus, all that stuff. I worship. And, and then the rest of the week, they're going to live a life 
that is in opposition to what it means to follow Christ. And they're going to think everything's okay. And it's not. When I was pastoring in Bridgeport, this is like towards the end. I remember I met this guy. I was to Bridgeport 10 years. This was probably year nine. And I'd never seen him before. He said, a preacher. You're the pastor at Bridgeport. I'm a member of your church. I said, really? I don't remember you. I hadn't been 20 years when I'm a member. I'm like, really? Don't tell anybody. Tell them you remember at first Chico. Nobody will care. But don't tell anybody. And that's what we think. I, I'm, I'm good. No, you're not good if you don't obey. So understand this. In the end, disobedience always leads to judgment. So follow Jesus. Listen, it don't matter what you think. God, whether you like it or not, in the end, those who rebel against God have to give an account. In his justice and mercy, God sent Jesus. In the mercy of God, in the justice of God, he sent Jesus. God was merciful to Saul. He gave him a couple of chances. He was merciful to the Amalekites. He gave him 200 years to repent. But eventually, justice will always come. And judgment comes to the disobedient. So I began this message saying that we don't get to determine how to follow God. He does. So do it his way. His way is Jesus. You need to follow Jesus. Listen, you may not understand everything. I get it. Sometimes I don't either. And sometimes you may struggle with things that you read. I understand. I struggle also. But in the end, I always trust Jesus. And I want to invite you to do the same. To follow Christ right now. And to give your life to him. And if you are a follower of Jesus... Are you obeying him? Because don't tell me that, yeah, I follow Christ if you don't obey him. If you strike out and if your life looks more like the life of the culture around you, you probably don't follow Jesus. So you may need to obey him. And you're not living the way he wants you to. And I want to invite you today. Maybe you need to pray for the Lord to help you obey. Just a minute as we have the invitation, we'll be here. If you want to come and have us pray with you, we will pray with you. If you want to give your life to Christ, you can give your life to Christ. If you want to join the church, you can join the church. If you want us to pray for somebody, you can do whatever you need. We'll be here. But here's the thing I really want to make sure you understand. That when you walk out of here today, don't be like Saul. Instead, be the obedient. So, Lord, we come to you. And sometimes in coming to you, it's hard because sometimes we struggle and I understand that. But God, you understand our struggle. You've revealed to us everything we need. And we have to trust you at that. And sooner or later, Father, it boils down to trust. We're either going to walk away from you or towards you. We're either going to do what Saul did and turn our back on you, or we're going to do what needs to be done and follow Christ. So, Father, with all our doubts and all our inability to understand, help us simply to trust you and in trusting you to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? You come. We'll be here.